the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, uh, great to be back, and uh, we've got some great fun folks on. We'll talk with uh, Rachel Bovard. Uh, Rachel Bovard, of course, is over at CPI, the conservative uh, uh Partner Policy Institute. Sorry about that. And uh, she'll we'll catch up with her. She has a piece that ran in the New York Times, if you can believe it, in the New York Times. Amazing. Um, so we'll ask her about that. And Ron Kessler will be with us. Ron Kessler has a um, incredible uh, history uh, in, in terms of writing, and therefore he's really good at this next topic. He's commentating on the fact that um, the uh, a new book is out that basically whitewashes and uh, and uh, glosses over the uh, FBI under Hoover. And so he's basically saying this Yale University professor is basically not telling us all the truth. And it's a crazy thing to have happen. It's really interesting. Uh, I got a column that he wrote in the Washington Examiner, and we'll talk about that with Ron Kessler in a, in a few moments. But first, uh, what broke over the weekend is a memo, a confidential memorandum written a month ago, about about five, no, eight days before the election. Um, and it is um, a, a memo from David Brock, the sort of well-known political guy. He was once an anti-Clinton guy. Then he was a uh, anti-Bush, I think. He's now a liberal. And he, uh, he basically says, the subject line is, Facts First USA, a SWAT team to counter Republican congressional investigations. So this is before the election. He writes this memo and he says, hey, we're going to lose the House and we're going to have to attack, attack, attack uh, the people in the House, the Republicans in the House that are investigating. And he has a lengthy memo um, that is, uh, let's see, 15 pages, 14, 15, almost 15 pages. And he basically says, we're going to go after these guys. And he lists the chairs. He lists the committees. He basically describes what he thinks the next area, the anticipate because the anticipated area of congressional scrutiny. And he says, we got to go in and we have to fight back. Now, a couple of observations, what you need to know. First, it's always good to know uh, the playbook of your opposition. So this is him saying, uh, here's how we plan to oppose Republicans in the House. That's helpful. It's worth studying for that. But here's the second thing. Why is it that it's that the left does a good job of organizing and raising money like this? Why is it that there's not anything uh, comparable on the conservative side? And it feels like this should be stuff that's done by the um, parties, but they don't do it anymore. And so, and I guess you say, well, there's Judicial Watch and there's Adam Angievsky. We talked to yesterday. He does OpenTheBooks.com. But they're not partisan players in the political process. They're um, making arguments. They're more conservative than not. But they're not doing what Brock says. Brock says we must attack them and we must use the facts if we can. But more importantly, we just need to get in their face, get in their grill and make their lives miserable. And this strategy, let me tell you, will work. It will work because it will make people 
It will raise the cost of these chairmen, the Republican chairman of House committees and others. It will raise the cost in terms of attention and negativity, and they will start to back off. It's human. It's, 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 um, it's like um, uh, a friction slows down an object as you roll it. Toward, if you roll an object, it's like physics 101, you know, like back to high school physics. If you roll an object, eventually the friction of the surface it's rolling on will slow it down. If you could roll something in a vacuum with no uh, friction of any kind, it would go forever. Well, what, the, what David Brock's memo shows is how the Democrats plan to use friction. And here's the wrinkle. When David Brock says it with a memo and he goes and gets 25 or $40 million, which I think is what he's projecting, what he, know, what he knows is there will be an aid to his effort. That is big media, big tech, and big government. And they will use the narrative machine, I call it. They will use all aspects of the narrative machine, big tech, big government, big media, to, to push this agenda. It will become a, uh, a vehicle for truth and for promoting good things and doing the right things. They will use it in such a way to make it look like David Brock is on the side of the angels and on the side of all things good and puppies and, and uh, spring training and everything else. Baseball, that is. And so I, what you need to know is this is not minor league ball. When I tell you that John Podesta, uh, who was once a senior uh, Bill Clinton uh, White House official and then chief of staff to Obama, he's going back into the White House. His whole job is to dispense $371 billion, with a B, dollars for green energy promotion. And he's going to do that to groups that are doing things like David Brock's doing. David Brock will say to John Podesta, I'm over here trying to fight for the truth I'm the arbiter of the truth. Therefore, give me money and he'll get it. And if he doesn't get it directly from Podesta, he'll get it from Podesta's allies. That's what for the Center for American Progress is all that. And so, I mean, what, what you need to know is what's happening. What you need to do is find ways to fight back. And here's one way I think they should be a fight. They should be fighting back. I think that the U.S. House, the House members should say, you made us a target in this memo. Therefore, we're going to investigate you. Because you're doing politics in a very specific way, politics, not policy arguments, but politics. And we, we're going to go and we're going to say, yep, let's go look into these guys. Let's look at because a 501c4 is a particular type of nonprofit under federal law. That's what David Brock's group is. And he should have to answer questions, oversight questions on what are you doing? How come you're taking nonprofit status? How come you're taking the benefit of the law? And what are you doing with it? And people say, oh, you're targeting your opponents. No more or less than our opponents are targeting us. Why isn't that fair game? The people who think that's fair game are the ones who understand how to battle. The ones who say, oh, that's not fair game. We should lay off that. It's not the right thing. They don't understand what kind of battle we're in. This is the perfect example of a way you can either talk about Hunter Biden's laptop and then you will be attacked by the David Brock SWAT. He calls it a SWAT. He calls it a SWAT. He, not me. He says it's a SWAT thing. Now, SWAT is mean armed means armed uh, uh, enforcement. The SWAT is a word that has very specific meaning and is used intentionally. And so he is going special weapons and tactics SWAT. That's what it stands for. I'm trying to look, I forgot that. And he, he's going to do that. David Brock is going to do that. What you need to know is that's coming. That's coming. And, and it's, it's focused and there should be accountability. And someone says, oh, you're targeting someone. Yeah, that's right. We are targeting them. 
People that said they're going to target public officials that use language like that, we better dig into their 501c4 status. And we ought to get to the bottom of it. And when we do, let's see what the answers to questions are. Because here, here's what will happen. Almost certainly some of the people who are doing the fight, Judiciary Committee or whoever, will go and they'll say, oh, let's get Hunter Biden's laptop. Okay. I mean, I'm not against it. I'm for it. But that's what David Brock's going to fight. He's going to say, well, the guy's got a drug addiction problem. He's, um, you know, he's the son of a president. Leave him alone. You know, I mean, nobody really wants to go through, you know, this or that or the other thing, blah, blah, blah. Instead, go take on the army. David Brock's the army. He set up a SWAT unit. Take on the army that is going to aid Biden in the Biden laptop uh, 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 investigation. See what I mean? That's what you need to know. That's what you need to do. You need to not fight on the terms, on the ground that they're defining for it. The late Phyllis Schlafly used to say that the most important thing about winning an argument is framing the argument on the terms you want to argue. She didn't debate the ERA on what she thought about uh, women's intelligence or women's ability to do jobs. No, she said, hey, the most potent argument is, do you really want your daughters in the draft in combat? One of a couple, by the way, uh, abortion rights enshrined in the Constitution forever. The fact that the ERA would have been in the Constitution forever, as opposed to a you know a, a policy that's a legislatively passed. That's the difference in knowing that you're in a fight and thinking that you're in an argument or a a a a, a back and forth discussion. We're in a fight now. Set up the terms. Don't take their terms. Don't take the terms of the of the fight that they say. Take the terms you want. And the advantage you have and use it. That's the point of that. All right. I'll put that memo. That memo's up everywhere, by the way. Do a search David Brock, a memo, and you'll see it and you'll get a sense exactly what they're up to. But it is worth reading. I'll put it up on social media myself and uh, I ask you to take a look. And that's what you need to know. Uh, don't forget, by the way, sign up everywhere you, um, uh, anytime you can at proamericareport.com. Sign up for the daily email, the daily wink, and uh, get that in your inbox uh, every day at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific. And uh, all right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We will talk with, um, um, we will make sure to talk with Rachel Bovard. She knows a lot about tech too. And Ron Kessler, both of those uh, folks are coming up after this break. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And our next guest is Rachel Bovard, who's been on before and author, commentator. You see her all over the place. Um, But Rachel, before the number one question I have, I sent out your article, your opinion piece that ran in the New York Times. How did that happen? Does the New York Times run Rachel Bovard (laughs) stuff? I mean, serious, like you, you have been so fearless in talking about a lot of key issues. I really would think that, you know, the New York Times is not, um, I don't know, they're not, they're not known on the opinion page for being particularly tolerant. Tell me how this came about. You're as surprised as I was, um, reached out to me and asked me if I had, you know, any pitches for them on Trump running again. And, you know, if I, they, they wanted to hear any ideas that I had for pieces, I sent them a couple of outlines. They liked it and said, hey, send it to us. And to my surprise, they took it. Uh, and with only a few minor edits, um, you know, I wrote it knowing they would probably cut some parts and they did, but I was pretty pleased with the, with the final product. So, hey, I guess every now and then, even the failing New York Times has to, has to admit they're, they're missing it if they don't include all voices. Well, I, and, and that, I mean, 
in some ways, the, the, the scandal that everybody might even miss, it goes to, it went too fast. They chased off the op-ed. Um, remember, they chased off the op-ed editor. Um, Bennett is his last name. I forget his first name, unfortunately. But And it was largely because they published Tom Cotton. And and they didn't like what Tom Cotton was saying. And, and the answer should have been like, wait, you're the New York Times. You have enough confidence in your own uh, editorial viewpoint that you can have people that you don't like. And it really, and that guy lost his job because of that. And it became a real mess. And uh, so I kind of I'm encouraged in a way, as you say, to, that they would actually be sort of willing to do that. OK, so to the point, the uh, the column is what makes Trump different from DeSantis and other Republicans. Now, before we get to that, let's say this. I did a little segment yesterday. Um, Paul Ryan announced or gave, they gave an interview and he said, you know, uh, entitlement cuts are really are not uh, that toxic anymore with voters. And you're like, uh, OK, and that feels like the uh, establishment Republicans sort of saying, you know, we had a, that interlude of about five years of Trumpism. Let's get back to our basics. I, it, I don't know what you think of that, but that it feels like that's what a lot of the other Republicans are. Yeah, there's been, I think, over the last four or five years, ever since Trump left office, this, this, and even when he was in office, right, this attempt by establishment Washington Republicans to regress to the mean, to go back to before Trump, to pretend Trump never happened, to pretend that he never uh, produced this base of voters that cares more about the issues that Trump cared about, you know, which are working class jobs, the border, um, you know, aggressing uh, against this idea that other countries can treat us terribly in trade agreements. And that's okay with us. A reduction in foreign wars. These are the things that the voters now care about in the Republican Party. But you still have people in Washington that don't get it. They think the party should be run top down and the agenda should be driven top down and not bottom up. And I think that's what you're seeing from Paul Ryan. He is going after his own agenda and trying to paper it over uh, the base of the Republican Party. But that's not where the base is anymore. And sadly, if these people continue to run the party, they're going to run it right into irrelevance. Well, and and we're talking. Again, with Rachel Bovard, she is the uh, policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Um, and as I mentioned, she writes a lot and, and is a commentator frequently, always, uh, always thoughtful and interesting to me, Rachel. So thanks for that. Um, I, I did a, another segment the other day. I said that, you know, Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly back in the day, she said, uh, you know, oh, she was sick of getting the same old echoes. She they, said they take us down the path, the echoes of the past and we lose. She said we need a choice, a real choice. So, you know, bold colors, all that stuff. And of course, that was when it was Goldwater she was referring to, but it became Reagan. I mean, it was really that that move went that way. Um, but back to this question of DeSantis and other Republicans, there is a m- move and you were sort of you do address this in your um, in your piece in The New York Times. There's a move by Republicans to say, well, you know, you, you get you get Trumpism without Trump's baggage and DeSantis and others. And I, I that's kind of that to me, that's the fallacy here, because, A, I don't believe it. I think a lot of the people um, that are running, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, they're not full Trumpism on a certain number of issues, including, by the way, including some of the negatives. I I said the other day, uh, there were people visiting the White House, Van Jones, who I didn't like having at the White House, just like there are people having dinner in Mar-a-Lago in the last week that people didn't like. This is Trump's been doing this his whole life. He's standing up at the NAACP in the 1980s with Al Sharpton. That to me seems insane. He's done it his whole life. But back to this uh, notion in your piece that somehow DeSantis or other Republicans are are to me our Trump uh, ism, but without Trump, it doesn't doesn't pass muster. 
Yeah, you know, I think there's a danger, and you're seeing this again from sort of the same people, the Paul Ryans of the world, you know, the David Frenches of the world, in attempting to move beyond Trump, not because they necessarily like or support what the other candidate stands for, but because they think they can use someone like DeSantis to purge the party of Trump. And to be clear, I think Ron DeSantis is great. I think everything he's done in Florida has been fantastic. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to say, well, he's he's going to be the vector by which we rid the party of Trumpism. That is not going to get him elected if that's the goal, right? right <laughs> like right. the the point I was trying to make in this piece even broader than that is the establishment figures are now aligning themselves with Ron DeSantis are actually hurting Ron DeSantis. I don't think that Ron DeSantis is necessarily courting these people or seeking out their endorsement, but they are endorsing him. And that's going to make the base fundamentally distrust him because they distrust these establishment figures so much that they've become toxic. They've become almost toxic elements. And that's a, they don't have enough self-awareness to realize it. And by this, I mean everybody from National Review to the Wall Street Journal editorial board. You know, the base, the people who elected Trump distrust the system completely. And they see those people as integral to that system that has sold them out with the Republican Party for the last 20 years. There's an inherent trust of Trump because people view him as outside the system. They still view him as the only person that can walk in and th- you know throw down, upend the whole system. And until there's a candidate that wins their trust in that regard, I just don't see a viable path to the nomination that doesn't involve Trump. So this attempt to rid the party of him, I just think it's going to backfire. Is um, on the specific... So what, what do you think happened in 2022 then in november in terms of um the some of the places where it looked like i mean the, the one that i arizona i mean carrie lake was so dynamic it felt like that was I don't, I don't know arizona well enough so i should you know maybe uh you know profess that up front but it, it didn't it felt like on the on the main issues of of normal elections everything was going against the democrats and yet a, a number of places they succeeded I, do you think that was a reflection of uh of trumpism of reflection of the media what do, what do you think of that what do we what, what do you make of 2022 so i think it, it, was, a, it was a lot of factors actually you know there's been a lot of finger pointing and recriminations in washington about you know well trump didn't you know trump's endorsement hurt us candidate selection hurt us all these things well at the end of the day when you talk about trump trump doesn't control the republican party's campaign apparatus. He doesn't do the hiring. He doesn't decide where the money goes. That is squarely at the feet of the Republican leadership. Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Ronald McDaniel, they control all of those elements. So I think there should be some self-reflection there, particularly when you have, you know, Mitch McConnell pulling money out of winnable Senate races in Arizona and New Hampshire and not looking back. And he controls, you know, all of the money in those Senate races. But I also think, you know, the Republican Party generally just didn't give people a reason to show up. Right. They relied on pointing at the other guy and saying, well, he's really bad. Vote for us. And that's just not enough anymore. You have to give people a reason to want to vote for you. And and the other guy being bad or, you know, inflation being high, those are valid, but they're not enough. They're, what are you going to do for these voters? How are you going to change and help their everyday lives? We didn't vision cast for them. And you can't expect voters to turn out when that is the case. So I think there's a lot of factors um, that, that go into it, but fundamentally, the Republican Party needs to, to cohere around a vision uh, for the voter, not just pointing at the other guy. And we haven't been able to do that. Uh, we're talking again with uh, Rachel Bovard, who is uh, the policy director over at uh, CPI. And um, again, worth um, when you see she's writing or, or hear her, she's speaking, uh, take a listen. Um, 
the in the popular culture, Rachel. Again, I know one of the things that you also write is um, over at the Federalist. Uh, you're the tech columnist, so I see you write on tech a lot and on all those issues. In the popular culture, and by, the reason I shifted there a little bit was you, that the, you know the, the, now just years. It's been I mean almost year to year, month to month. The, the, the number of people that are utilizing social media, whether it's Instagram or F- Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is, it's just unbelievable how quickly it's happening. But in the popular culture, is Trump does Trump have I mean again over the over the holiday I think it was is it for Home Alone 2 where there's a, a, a cameo of Trump you realize like Trump's been in the culture <laughs> the popular culture for decades and that had a great that had a great um, advantage I think was a great advantage to him going into 2016 in the popular culture are we stuck with these um, these negative tropes I mean that have just dominated and how does that play out I mean it feels like any Republican will be painted into a, a, you know not just having your car, you know, having your dog on the top of your car, which is what happened to Romney, which was terrible, but really nasty, nasty stuff. And I don't know if you can fight your way through that. Yeah, you know, it's people are up against an avalanche, I think, of sort of mainstream, not just mainstream media, but sort of every cultural and political institution arrayed against the right. That's the reality that we're living in. Because the left march through the institutions was a world changing success. Right. They were very right. successful. And the, the conceit on the right was that, oh, the market will correct for this imbalance. And frankly, it hasn't. And we stopped paying attention to the institutions and that's been to our detriment. And now we are living in the consequence of that. So I think, you know, we have I think the right has done a very good job, though, in creating its, its own media ecosystem. And to the extent that, you know, we can reach voters through shows like yours and others, I think that's important. Um, and it's also important in, in written areas as well. That's why I write for The Federalist and, and a lot of right-leaning media. Um, and I don't, frankly, spend a lot of time worrying about The New York Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, I think it's – but that's why also – the fights over tech are so important because even though we each have our own media ecosystem, the social media landscape is where people get their news now. It's where we speak to each other. It very much is the public square, right? Yes, you can go still, you know, post on a billboard or stand in the park and hand out your literature. That's not reaching at, at all the scale that social media reaches. So the fights to be able to speak into those spaces and be heard, I think, are the fights for the future of politics in this country, frankly. And that's why I'm so heavily invested in talking and writing about it, because I, I really do feel, and I don't think it's overstating it, that the future of self-government really hinges on our ability to foster dissent and pluralism and multi, multiple points of view on those platforms. You know, otherwise, we are literally just speaking in ghettos to ourselves and the nature of free speech, as we've always understood it, ceases to exist. Well, and and I'll just finish because I'm out of time. But also um, the the sophistication with which some of big tech and even big media, I call it the, you know, one is changing your brain through brain science, big tech and big media is brainwashing through images and all. They're all overlapping. But some of it is at a certain point you look up and you say that that person's not, you know, not even open because they've been brainwashed and their brain's been changed. I mean, it's to me, it's that scary. But Rachel Bovard, I have to go. Thank you for taking the time. We got a last minute uh, grabbed you to thank you, Rachel Bovard. I'll put up on social media a link to uh, CPI where she's the policy director. Uh, thanks for all your writing. And we appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. OK, we'll take a break, everybody. And we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Ronald Kessler. He is, of course, a, a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author. If you go and look, though, it's like uh, it's not it's, it's dozens of books on every topic under the sun, um, including, by the way, uh, Ron, I remembered I looked back that one, one of your earliest books was on the life insurance game, which uh, exposed the insurance industry, which is fascinating. You need another upgrade on that because it's uh, there's a lot there. But he's got a piece over at the Washington Times, uh, one of my favorite places to go, and the, the piece is entitled Whitewashing J. Edgar Hoover's Legacy. So, Ronald Kessler, welcome back. How are you? Hey, great to be with you, Ed. It's Ronald Kessler, by the way, ronaldkessler.com. There's two S's in Kessler, ronaldkessler.com. You can see all his uh, things there. Okay, so um, Whitewashing uh, J. Edgar Hoover's Legacy. It, I, first thing, is it surprising to anyone now at this point it feels like we've been sort of um trained to distrust institutions that distrusting institutions on everything feels right interesting um well in this case you know almost everyone has been aware that hoover would use blackmail files to get his way uh and and to keep himself in power. He was director of the FBI for almost 50 years. Um, And yet this Yale uh, history professor, Beverly Gage, just came out with a book on Hoover that's supposed to be the definitive word and is taken seriously by all the papers, New York Times, Washington Post, um, which completely ignores all the evidence. And that includes, for example, in my book, in this... Uh, the secrets of the FBI, on-the-record interviews with the FBI officials of the time uh, describing how Hoover would, in fact, uh, collect this derogatory information on senators, on presidents, uh, in order to uh, have a hold on them and in order to keep his job so nobody would fire him. And I even quote the victim of his blackmail attempts, uh, uh, an uh, aide on the Hill to Senator Carl Hayden describing how Carthur Deloach, an FBI official, approached him and and hinted that, you know, he had this uh, information about his affairs when he was married uh, because uh, Hoover wanted more money for the FBI building. Well, this particular guy, Roy Elson, called his bluff and said, well, I hope you have pictures. I want to show it to the senator. But, you know, this is this is on the record. And yet, uh, this uh, uh, so-called historian ignores all of it and says, "Well, we're just a, it's just a, a legend that that Hoover would do that." Um, and I, I think, above all, it, it uh, shows uh, how low our colleges have sunk that they would have someone like that uh, who would totally uh, ignore the facts and then, of course, be taken seriously by. The book reviews of the, of the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, calling it a breakthrough. Um, and it, it is important to remember that abuse that he that who were engaged in. In fact, in, in her book, she even uh, excuses uh, uh, Hoover's uh, denunciation of Martin Luther King as the biggest 
liar in the world. Well, first of all, and and uh, finds an excuse for for what he said, saying, "Well, fifty uh, percent of Americans in a poll agreed with with Hoover," uh, as if as if that exonerates his his comment. Uh, well, so, and so, of course, so, the FBI has no business uh, denouncing anybody. Right. So we're talking with Ronald Kessler, and again, Ronald Kessler dot uh, uh, com is his website, and he's got incredible books on so many different topics. Um, and uh, um, before I'll come back to the whitewashing of, of the FBI, but why is this happening? I mean, I just I looked it up before we got on the air. This Beverly Gage is a professor of history and American studies at Yale. She went to Yale undergrad, I think. She went to Columbia for a PhD. Um, so this is the mainstream. Um, she's not a kid. She looks like she's probably 50. So um, that I'm, I only mean that because, you know, there's a period of time where historians, you know, are, are learning and compiling. And so why is this happening? I mean, what is the yeah. benefit of I, Because you would think in a weird way, the feminists, uh, you know, and she looks like she's more leaning feminist on some of her other writings. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not even sure that. But you'd think the modern sensibility would be to just savage the politically incorrect um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. It, 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 oh, except for being a homosexual, which, uh, you know, a closet homosexual, which they probably, you know, would be OK with him on that in a certain sense. Although the closet part, they probably thought he wasn't courageous. You would think they would savage him. I mean, destroy him and say he was the worst ever. Yeah. Why is what is your instinct on why this is happening? Yeah, that that is the puzzle because because it doesn't fit in, in, fit any uh, known paradigm of, of of what's going on in, in the media and politics today. Uh, you would think that that a Yale professor would att- would be attacking Hoover over over his uh, abuses, but you know I I think that a she's na- naive and b she doesn't do her research. She did. Uh, and no, uh, my some my FBI books, but I'm sure she never read them. And 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 beyond that, uh, she has to be uh, out to lunch, just out to lunch. And uh, you know, she spent ten years on this. It's an 800-page book. Uh, it's it's claimed to be uh, the d- definitive word uh, according to the Washington Post. Um, and uh, they, they, uh, there's just no accounting for for how foolish this is. Is there an are there I mean, your book, uh, uh, but are there other um, uh, uh, counter? I mean, uh, yeah. uh, is this is this a defense of the FBI? Is she trying to uh, hold off the idea that a lot of Americans, you know, you do if, if she's going to rely on polls, go do a poll. And I think, I don't know, two thirds of the country would say they don't trust the FBI the way they did. I don't know what, what that means. But um, it, this is Penguin Random House, by the way. This is not a small publisher. It's not the, it's not even Yale University Press, which would publish its own people. This is, you know, supposed to be some. And as you point out, everybody's fallen into line to make it a, a bestseller. Um, yeah. Is this a protection of the FBI? No, I mean, she doesn't seem to have a grasp of, of anything, uh, including uh, the the workings of the <laughs> FBI. But rather, you know, she has these sort of so, sociological musings about about all these issues. Uh, well, you know, it just sort of goes on. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's it, it's really hard to describe. Uh, I think she, she, you know, she has this self-importance that she she feels she can uh, uh, explain all these things by her strange standards it, it just doesn't fit any any paradigm that we know uh, know of uh, but but the fact that that uh, you know the media uh, accepted this as 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 real and and authoritative is is really the shocking thing to me 
So uh, now one one more broad. We're talking with Ronald Kessler, the noted author, a journalist, and uh, and his website ronaldkessler.com has uh, links to his columns. If uh, I was mentioning him on the, the sidebar, it says articles. You click on that and go down. Um, you can see them all and lots of, of, of lots of writings um, on all sorts of topics. Uh, Ron, um, is this how history is written? I mean, meaning in thirty years from now. Is Yale going to be teaching courses on on G Man? Is that the title of it? G Man, this book, and that's what people are going to remember. I mean, is and and then and then do you ever shake your head and say, I just read a history of. Um, I don't know uh, uh, the Gilded Age. That's another one of her areas of uh, expertise, and it's just full of it. Oh. I mean, it's it's so off base. I mean, yeah. here's one. Here, by the way, here's another. No, she's she's an expert on ideology and social movements, especially conservatism and radicalism. What are the chances that she's got an, a real <laughs> a real view of that? This is on her website, yeah. by the way. So, uh, is this how history's written? And and are we at the point where uh, you at least have to start out with an instinct that it's fake history and then work your way back from there? You know, I think it's it's part of the de deterioration of, of oh, colleges I see. I see. in general, and uh, just ratifies my decision to drop out of college. Um, <laughs> you know, she even she even ignores the clear evidence that Hoover was personally a real racist. You know, off the record comment remarks. Uh, which I quoted in my book, Hoover told an audience of newspaper ed editors in 1965 that the, quote, colored people are quite ignorant, mostly uneducated, and I doubt if they would seek an education if they had an opportunity. Where was that in her book? Nowhere. Totally ignored. Totally ignored. Hmm. It's um, it's an interesting problem. You know, uh, Ronald Kessler, I, I digress for a moment. I have had on the program uh, Martin Dugard, you know, Martin Dugard, who wrote the sort of killing books, the, the killing Kennedy, killing with, with O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly. Sure. And he's writing his own books. He's got a series now on um, one was called Taking Paris and the next one is Taking Berlin. But the thing about the books, and, he, and he, he does a lot of research like your books and it looks at a lot of stuff, but he writes very short chapters. And it, I mean, like two thousand words or less, and he does it. It's intentional. He we talked about it, but um, you you read that you as you say the breaking down of the academia into this uh, you know failure to be critical. Um, I wonder if there is a counter uh, movement, right? Is it a counter movement that is writing like you do a, a more uh, popular? I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, histories or or examinations, and and can that be the counterweight? I, I I don't know. It's a it's it's um it's frustrating to think of the thousands and thousands of students that will graduate from places like Yale and others who will have been exposed to the authoritative vision of someone like this. Yeah, well, you know, as you know, uh, the woke culture has taken over universities, so so things are even worse than than we're talking about because they, instead of talking about real facts and real history, they talk about you know uh, sexual orientation and and God knows when and, and what kind of pronouns to use. So so <laughs> again. I'm, thank God I left college after two years. <laughs> I started uh, in the newspaper world, and uh, I never looked back. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and of course, I think it did, didn't use your first job. Uh, wasn't it Worcester? The Worcester Telegram, right? Yeah. So that's uh, that's my old uh, stomping grounds. So, all right, Ronald Kessler. Thank you as always, RonaldKessler.com. If you go to his website, I believe. Can you sign up? I always like when you send these articles out to guys like me to see. So, can people sign up on your website to get? Uh, uh, no. Um, well, that's just I'm just. A all right yeah. well if they, if they send me an email i'll forward it on to you and uh ronaldkessler.com 
very helpful. Thanks, uh, Ron, for the time. Thank you, Ed. All right. We will take a break, and I'll put up on social media his, a bunch of links. Every time I go to his website, uh, I end up um, thinking to myself, I need to read that book that he wrote. And I mentioned The Life Insurance Game, which is one of his earliest books. Uh, but he's also written about the inside of the uh, the White House, uh, uh, really interesting, and a book on um, Trump, too. He has a perspective on Trump because he knew him uh, years ago, a couple decades ago from his time in, uh, down in Florida. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We will be back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast launched by Phyllis Schlafly, who served as an articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Upholding that legacy and himself an author, national speaker, and attorney, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. You have likely heard the term Spirit of 76 as a description of the patriotism we feel as Americans. The critical date of July 4th, 1776 is celebrated as the beginning of a new era in the history of mankind. Brave men pledged themselves to the principles of self-governance and liberty. While I wholeheartedly agree that Independence Day is a day worthy of commemoration and celebration, remember that we would never celebrate July 4th if it weren't for what happened on November 30th. On that historic date in 1782, John Jay, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Henry Lawrence secured a provisional peace with Great Britain, which ultimately led to the 1783 Treaty of Paris. These brave negotiators not only delivered British recognition of American independence and thus ended the war, but they also successfully lobbied for the fishing rights in Newfoundland and established a generous western border at the Mississippi River with rights of navigation on the river. In some ways, November 30th, 1782 was the ending of what started on July 4th, 1776. In other ways, of course, what started in 1776 has never ended. Regardless, 1782 marked the end of six years of terrible suffering by courageous patriots who believed in the promise of what America could be. Finally, our forefathers were able to put the scourge of war behind them and focus on building a true republic for future generations of Americans, including you and me. The spirit of 1776 represents the casting of a vision for a new kind of nation, governed by and for the people. However, what makes 1776 so special is the fact that it was more than an idea. It was a declaration of principles that men and women were willing to die for. Remember the sacrifices that brought us to the Treaty of Paris on November 30th, 1782, because we too will have to fight for our principles and to believe that liberty is worth the sacrifice. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Our mission, clearly stated at phyllisschlafly.com, is to enable and mobilize grassroots activism on behalf of cherished conservative values. You're encouraged today to go online and read the goals we support and those we oppose. Then join us. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and come back next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, um, this is, I put this, file this under uh, my uh, warnings for the future. I, I have been talking to some key folks, smart folks, about what's going on. And there was a story that broke over the weekend. I think it was on, uh, I don't know where it ran. If it run, run on someplace, um, 
uh, AP or something, but it's a story about another uh, American who was bribed uh, by corrupted by the Chinese uh, to get them a bunch of information about airplanes. I think it was a former military guy and I'll put it up on social media. But the fact is this, we have a problem in this country, a big problem. And the problem is with the Chinese, the Chinese regime hiring and inf- hiring spies and infiltrating America. It, the, uh, the notion that for 40 or 50 years, the Soviet Union was infiltrating America and creating America, uh, spies in America for the Soviets. The idea that they did that and the Chinese are doing nothing is crazy. All around us are, is evidence that the Chinese will do anything to get an advantage. They do not have the same sense of ethics uh, that the West has. Their ethics are driven by, frankly, China first, the Chinese communist regime first, more than anything, not the, not the nation. But, you know, party first, that's what they are. It's party first. And they're fearless. Once you know that's their ethic, they're fearless for their party. And they've got spies everywhere. They've got infiltrators everywhere. And we're not paying attention from TikTok to uh, tech transfer to hundreds of thousands of Chinese national students. It goes on and on. And we better wake up. The wake-up call is that there are spies among us, Chinese spies among us. And uh, we have to get real about this and, uh, uh, and, and do the right things to stop it. And we're not. I mean, you know, the, uh, someone told the story about Diane Feinstein staffer, Chinese spy. I mean, Eric Swalwell, co- according to reports, had a um, relationship with, um, with someone who was in the middle of spying. Unbelievable. We have to be aware of the cost of being lazy about this. All right. That's all I've got. Thank you, as always, to Noah Dingley and uh, Joanna Spilger. We'll be back uh, tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>